three vicars, Reverends Richard Coles, Kate Botley and Giles Fraser, talk about Christmas. This is part of a series where we shall hear one episode for each Sunday in Advent. My first parish, lovely vicar there, my training in Cumberland, we used to do lots of carol services there, but had beautiful medieval choir stalls. So we'd come in at the beginning together, robed, coped, blah, 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 hello everybody. And then you could lean back in the stall, but what they didn't have was a little gate at the back of the stall. You could go out, we could go to the vicarage, and so we'd have a whiskey, and then the verger could ring a bell, but it was Heart the Herald. <laughs> and you could like, I love that. Heart the Herald Angels Sing. And that was a lifesaver, actually. I love Christmas, and I love Christmas because I think it's the thing that most securely and powerfully and poignantly connects me to childhood and the expectations okay, of childhood. Who were you in the Nativity play? You touch on an awkward and difficult point, Kate, because I really, really wanted to be a king, but I was a shepherd. Would you like me to do the pastoral head tilt at you? Because you're touching into deep childhood trauma here. Do you have people turning up for your nativity? Like, I had one year where the little boy turns up as Batman. Yeah. Okay, for the nativity play, and you think, oh, we'll find a way of getting you. No, my, my favourite thing to do with the nativity play in church is to do the scratch nativity, so to stop any arguments about who's going to be Mary and who's going to be the angel Gabriel and all that sort of stuff. Narrator one, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, what we do is just have a big box of dressing up clothes. You just go, go at the beginning of the service, and the kids and grown ups would just leg it to the dressing up box, and whoever got the costume first, is that, that what was do? what part they played. Yeah. Mm, it makes me think of the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. Never mind. <laughs> the the problem with Christmas is this, uh, this is my theological sort of two pennyworth, worth, is that we have this sort of sentimental view of it, but it's actually the most radical yeah. festival, the most radical festival sort of theologically ever invented. The idea that God, the thing that almost all cultures imagine to be power and transcendence, yeah. uh, becomes powerless and imminent. And I think we've sort of lost how shocking Christmas is but amongst all the tinsel. That's the bit that gets me. But it is nonetheless durable. I mean, I, I, I was a chorister when I was a kid, so I grew up with it all. But as soon as I could get out of it, I did, with a kind of full-blooded atheism and a commitment to a material world. But the thing that endured through all that was Christmas, actually. And I would creep back to Midnight Mass just to kind of touch base with it again because it was important to me and because I kind of sensed in it something that was enduring and powerful and radical, so and I, spoke to that radical. I grew up with none of that. I went to church in my own volition when I was 14, Where so we had nothing. I fancied the vicar's son, you know that. You, you know that him. story. Reader, I married him. Anyway, um, I was. we were never taken to church, so that we never had any of that. It was all Father Christmas, it was all Coca-Cola trucks. It, it had nothing to do with Jesus Christmas, really. I mean, we said grace occasionally around the table on Christmas Day. That was only once I got religion, though. Did you have religious advent calendar, or did you have chocolate advent? Chocolate advent calendar there's no other sort I still do you know I've just been into the gift shop here at St Martin's to see if they've got any advent calendars they've only got the rubbish religious ones with Jesus <laughs> on. no chocolate we'll raise what's it, that we'll raise it with the rector. <laughs> what's that <laughs> I think one of the things that's sometimes difficult for clergy is that our churches are often full, fuller than they are any other time of year, but we don't always connect in the way we think we connect with the people who are there, do we? Does it bother you that you kind of find a Christmas stamp and there's nothing Christian on it? Does it bother you that there are Christmas cards for sale and it's all Santas and reindeer? I I sort of love both, actually. I I love the sort of culture of schmaltzy, sentimental Christmas because I'm schmaltzy and sentimental myself. The only thing I don't like about it is the way it obscures something 
the, the clarity of what's going on theologically with Christmas, which is much more radical, much more shocking than people think. Have you ever done the... I've got a sermon for you then. Have you ever done the manger covered in tinsel sermon where you hide the manger under a pile of baubles and tinsel and then you get the kids to try and find the baby Jesus underneath all the tinsel? Oh, very nice. There you go, you very see? Nice. You can have that one. <laughs> I want an charge you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's the myths and the legends around it. I mean, because that's what happens is you get a church full of people who think they know what Christmas is, right? So I wrote an article for Saga magazine, which no doubt you read, Richard. Um, I wrote... (laughs) I wrote an article for Saga magazine last year about Christmas and wrote about how... There is no mention of the donkey. There is no mention of three kings. Certainly the shepherd and the the magi weren't at the same place at the same time. Well, the letters I got, you would not believe how angry people were. There was one woman who went, of course there was a donkey. What about the Carol Little Donkey? Yeah, I don't think that was written in. The first sermon, the first sermon I ever preached was a Christmas sermon. And I preached to say that the reason Christ was born at Bethlehem was to do with prophecy in the Old Testament. And a voice rose from the wife of a retired canon at the back and she went, rubbish! (laughs) That was my first ever sermon feedback. I just come back from Israel for three months and I went to Bethlehem. I was in Bethlehem a few weeks ago. And I I always have the same problem when I go there and it's sort of part of the problem I have with Christmas, which is that people get on the bus from Jerusalem and they come in really, really quickly and they get out of the bus air-conditioned buses and they go straight into the fancy church and it's sort of like you know this is where Jesus was born and then they get back onto the bus and they leg it and they don't really see the wider like in Bethlehem there's lots of Christians and it's quite difficult. In Manger Square of course there were tanks not that long ago. Exactly right and the whole idea of the sort of living stones of the people of the church rather than the, the, the sort of fancy stones and it's the sort of tinsel churchiness that can sometimes obscure it all. And that connects to what you were saying is that there's a the reason why Christmas, even if it does seem to be completely lost behind the kind of gloss of tinsel or the kind of sentimentality of adverts with fire-breathing dragons in, is that it does connect you to that that really powerful idea. And I still think it's the reason why people still connect to that is because it is ineradicably powerful, this sense that God has become flesh. And it's one of us, the image of, of Mary in that, a woman with low status becomes the person who carries the Christ child. That was always a really powerful image for me. You know, even as a evangelical heritage girl, there was always a really powerful metaphor in that image of Mary holding that baby. But we're all high church at Christmas, aren't Yeah, we? of course we are. There's something about <laughs> Christmas, Christmas that is just it. high church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Of course, you want candles, you want handbags on fire, you want all that. James Runcie is son of former Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie. James talks to Michael Barclay about his love of Bach's St. Matthew Passion and also about the loss of his wife, Marilyn, to motor neuron disease. Sometimes a musical work of art is just so perfect, so magnificent, that it's almost impossible to remember the sheer work that's gone on behind the scenes, from the early drafts to the anxiety and relief of the first performance. That's certainly true of a masterpiece like the Bach's and Matthew Passion. But my guest today, James Runcie, wants us to think about what went on in Bach's mind while he was creating that magnificent passion. And he's written both a play and a novel about it. The novel, his twelfth, is called The Great Passion, and it was published earlier this year. You might have heard the play on Radio 4 just before Easter. James is an award-winning filmmaker, a playwright and artistic director. He's worked at the BBC, the Bath Literary Festival and the South Bank Centre. 
He's also the author of the Grantchester detective novels, now filming their eighth series for television. The hero is a young priest who solves crimes while wrestling with problems of religious faith. And religion is something James Runcie certainly knows all about, as his father, Robert, was Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, being the son of an archbishop is something to live down, I imagine. There are complicated areas. Um, <laughs> and living, being the son of a priest or the daughter of a priest is quite complicated because of the expectations upon you to behave well and the idea that you will be the same kind of moral exemplar as your parents. And, of course, the tendency then is to rebel and <laughs> behave extremely badly. I think I've managed to do both. But the, um, the sense of the sacred, the sense of life beyond this one. I mean, there are all sorts of issues, but the idea that this world is transient is one of the most common things, I think, this idea that we are only here for a short while. It brings it into sharp relief when so many services are about the rites of passage of birth, marriage and death. Well, let's hear some of the Matthew Passion. Well, I've chosen this aria, Marker Dick, uh, sung by Dietrich Fischer-Dieskel, because obviously there are many arias to choose from, from the St. Matthew Passion, Obama Dick being the most obvious. But there's something about this idea of cleansing, make my heart pure, that I find, it, it makes me very, very tearful, and it comes very late on in the St. Matthew Passion, and it's a kind of summary of... It's that appeal to the individual sinner, the individual person, who, what I love about the Matthew Passion is that the fact that it operates on both a grand scale and an intimate scale, and that the chorus can be both, rather like in a Greek tragedy, the chorus can be both observers and utterly involved. And this idea that you can take this enormous story into your own individual heart and try to be cleansed by it, I find amazingly moving. And this recording is not a modern one by any means, but you obviously have a great affection for it. Well, I have a great affection for Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau, partly because of my mother adoring him, and so I was brought up with the sound of his voice. But there is a wonderful version by the Dunedin Consort with Matthew Brooks singing it. But I wanted this because it reminds me of my childhood, and it, it, there's something about Fischer-Dieskau's voice. The pace is much more stately, and there's something very serious about it, something, dare we say, German about it. It's the Richter recording, which is much, much slower than modern recordings. Large orchestra, vibrato. Big, big orchestra, not mm. traditional instruments, not, not old instruments, not one to a part. It's old, big, scaly stuff, you know, and it's magisterial. And yet this voice soars over it in the most intimate and personal way. Ich will Jesus 
Dietrich Vyshadiska with that wonderful music from the St. Matthew Passion by Bach. Karl Richter conducting the Munich Bach Orchestra. It's the final aria where Joseph of Arimathea buries Jesus. Yes. Um, it's always... Everyone talks about Abarmadik being the moment where you cry, but I always cry at this bit. So it's very hard to talk about because I remember, you know, my wife holding my hand and knowing I was going to cry. Um, so it, it, it's... But you kind of want to cry as well because you've got to let all the emotion that you've been through, uh, all that suffering and all that beauty come out of you somehow and somewhere because it has to be released. And that is perhaps the glory of this piece of music because it enables you to feel thoughts what Wordsworth called too deep for tears. And then, of course, the tears do come. And it's something remarkable and profound and challenging and takes you a long time to recover from, but you're glad you did it. You are sadly uh, no stranger to grief, James. Uh, as we mentioned, your wonderfully talented drama director wife, Marilyn, died in 2020 of motor neuron disease. And you've written a memoir about her, which will be published in November. One of the most moving sections is all about playing music to her towards the end. Yes. Well, this is obviously very hard to talk about, but um, because at the end she couldn't speak, because motor neuron disease is literally an unspeakable disease because you lose the power of speech and you can't communicate. But one way of communicating was through music, so I would play her our favourite pieces, um, uh, including... Uh, the funny thing is, of course, the Sir Matthew Passion is a step. It's too difficult, really. Mm. So it was opera and piano music and K for O, you know, some Handel, some Purcell... Um, died of an Aeneas, that's always a <laughs> when I'm laid in earth, oh God, maybe this is a mistake. Um, and we were able, so the decline was six months, she had it for a year, we think, probably longer, but there was enough time to plan her memorial service and to talk about the music she would like and her favourite music and the performers she would like. So music was a discussion through her illness and was a great help through it. I can't say it was a total help because obviously it's the most horrible, horrible disease and the most horrible thing. And she never wanted, she didn't want to die, you know. And people we talk about resignation and everything. We didn't have any of that, actually. Um, so it was a battle. But even these, these words are cliches, aren't they? Yeah. People battle with cancer. Well, it's sort of. But there's nothing, there is, of course, no language to describe it, which is where music comes in again because you can't describe it. And it's very hard to communicate with somebody who can't speak back to you. Um, but you didn't want to end with a piece that cast us all down, um, which I think is typical of your character. You want to end with one of the pieces which brings joy, and I imagine that's something from what you've written which has uh, very much permeated your life with your wife. Well, we were married for 35 years, and I thought the memorial service could be very bleak, and she wanted it to be thankful and she wanted to be present at it and promised to be at it which of course in many ways she was and she's still very much in my life but I thought I wanted thankfulness to be part of it I wanted grace and thankfulness she was a very very cheerful person and she wouldn't want people to go out of that feeling bleak because it was fantastic that she lived at all. Fantastic that we had 35 years. It was absolutely amazing. She was an amazingly brilliant, wonderful, lovely woman. So, 
he wanted to honour that. And so I thought, and I heard um, in the middle of all this grief, because it was because of COVID, it was over a year before the memorial service, I thought of the music and I thought of what we would do. And Carolyn Sampson, who I know, um, I just... She said, are you all right? How are you? And I, she said, I'm doing this concert at the Wigmore Hall. And I turned it on and uh, heard her sing. And I thought, I, she has to come to the memorial service and I have to persuade her to sing. And I thought about Purcell's evening hymn, which ends with this enormous alleluia, as the Cantata 51 ends, with, which we've started this programme, ends with this alleluia. And I thought, well, let's end with an alleluia and a round of applause. We had that theatrical round, a minute of applause and whooping. But let's have something really graceful, really thankful and beautiful and astoundingly celebratory, because that's what life should be. Well, James Rudsey, thank you very much. And we will say goodbye with the Purcell Evening Hymn sung by Carolyn Sampson. Thank you, James. Thank you. It's total, total pleasure. Carolyn Sampson with Purcell's An Evening Hymn.
worship night and day, a breast full of milk and a manger full of hay, enough for him who mangers fall down And us and cattle which
Ian Rose is in charge of Soundwaves Radio in Sussex. Ian has produced a series of short thoughts, one of which he shares with us now. I rather like this quote that I came across the other day. If we are ever to love a butterfly, we must first care for a few caterpillars. You know, if Jesus had waited for me to become a lovable person before he came to earth to befriend me, I'd still be unforgiven. But he didn't. He died for me and forgave all the wrong that I've done while still an unattractive caterpillar. Dead in my sins is how the Bible puts it. So how about it then? Let's not wait until that pain in the neck at the office or over the garden fence changes before we make friends. Let's make a few caterpillars into butterflies starting today. Dr. Philip Noble has many interests, which you can see on his website, bubblestrings.com. In this series on heart and soul, he's talking about different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Today, he encourages us not to be downhearted. Quite recently, I had a meeting with a, a man who was a Bible teacher who came from Sri Lanka. He was a lovely, open man and shared very much about his work with students in Sri Lanka and the difficult situations they were in. But then he told this wonderful story, and here it is. He said there was once a chess master visiting 
picture gallery and he saw a painting that really took his attention. It was of two people playing, one who appeared to be like the devil, dressed in a red robe and had a smirk on his face, and the other playing was a young man dressed all in white and looking a bit downhearted. And the title under the game of chess was Checkmate. Well, the chess master studied the picture and took a long time to come to a conclusion. And then he went to talk to the head of the gallery and said, I wonder if you could come with me to look at this picture. And the head agreed and said, I'll, I'll come and look, yes. And the chess master said, I think you're going to have to change the name on the painting. He said, why? He said, because it's not checkmate. The king has one more move. And the head of the gallery said, well, who are you to say that? He said, well, I am actually a chess master and I can show you the move. And so it was, they got out a chessboard, put the pieces down as they were in the painting. And the chess master took the king and made one more move. Not only did the king have one more move, with that one move, it meant it was possible to checkmate the other side, the black pieces. And so the name of the painting was changed to the chess game. Now, that's a wonderful story for us today, because whatever situation we're finding ourselves in, however difficult it might be, just remember that the king always has one more move. It's not finished. The king is always ready to make one more move. And the most striking example of all that of this would be when Jesus was taken and imprisoned and flogged and then nailed to a cross and put into a tomb. That surely was the final end. Checkmate, you might say. But no, the king had one more move and Jesus rose from the dead. So if you are feeling very low today, depressed or sad about the future, just remember it is not the end. Even if you can't see it yet, maybe someone else can to help you. And on the other hand, if you are feeling very happy with the way things are going and comfortable and all that lies ahead. Don't get too comfortable because remember, the king still has one more move for you too.